from CPRI and the CPRI Knowledge Hub, this is Research Minutes, a weekly look at new and important research in education. Today, in a special episode, we look at teacher-powered schools, a unique and growing model for operations and decision-making employed in schools across the country. It's been a century-long aspiration for elementary secondary teachers to have greater input into decision-making in the schools in which they work. And in some sense, we can view this growing movement of teacher-powered schools as, as some kind of fruition of that long aspiration. We sit down with researchers Richard Ingersoll and Sarah Kemper, Principal Jeff Austin, and former Superintendent Charles Kite to discuss what we've learned about teacher-powered schools and what they look like in action. Don't build the story and try to build a school into the story. Let the school be the story. Like, look at who are you serving? Who are your students? What do they need? What does their community need? That has to be your foundation. That's right now on Research Minutes. Hello and welcome to Research Minutes. I'm Keith Umeller, Managing Editor of the CPRI Knowledge Hub. In our first segment today, we're happy to welcome Richard Ingersoll, Professor of Education and Sociology with the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education and an internationally recognized expert on the American teaching workforce. Thanks for joining us, Richard. Thank you for having me, Keith. And we're also speaking with Sarah Kemper, a Research Associate with the Center for Applied Research and Educational Improvement at the University of Minnesota whose dissertation titled Where I Bloomed, Exploring Teacher Professional Vitality and the Teacher-Powered School is now available through the University of Minnesota's Digital Conservancy. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. It's so great to be here. So today we're talking about the growth and potential of teacher-powered schools. So to start, for those who may not be familiar, could you tell us what a teacher-powered school is and how prevalent they are here in the U.S.? Sure. So teacher-powered schools are schools in which practicing teachers, whether in small groups or collectively, are ultimately responsible for making school-level decisions about how, when, where, with what materials, and with whom they educate their students. And while teachers don't need to have authority over all areas of school life for a school to be considered teacher-powered, some common decision-making domains might be establishing the mission, vision, or goals of the school, selecting approaches to teaching and learning, determining the schedule, designing staff evaluation protocols or professional development experiences, hiring colleagues, and also establishing the school's discipline policy. So because teachers are charged with making decisions locally on behalf of their specific student populations, Teacher-powered schools are really as different from one another as the communities they're located in. So you can find them in urban, suburban, and rural areas, and high and low-poverty neighborhoods, in ethnically, racially, and linguistically diverse communities, in predominantly Black communities, in predominantly white communities, in predominantly Latinx communities, and even online, yes, even in pre-pandemic times. There's also a wide variety of approaches to learning being practiced in teacher-powered schools. Some of them are project-based schools. Others have social justice at the core of the curriculum. Some are STEM or art-focused, and these are just a few of a lot of examples. I would also add there's a number of ways to be teacher-powered. 
Some of the teacher-powered schools exist within large public school districts. Others are independent public charter schools. Some teacher teams are unionized, while others are not. And there's lots of different ways that teacher teams have secured school-level autonomy and decision-making authority. And then one last thing I'll add is that while some teacher-powered schools don't have a principal or designated school leader, many do, but that person is often selected by and accountable to the entire teaching staff or a subset of the teaching staff. So you can learn a lot more about teacher-powered schools from the Teacher-Powered Schools Initiative, which is a project of the Minnesota nonprofit Education Evolving, and their website is teacherpowered.org. And they maintain an inventory of about 150 schools across the U.S. and counting. So that number seems to be going up a little bit every year. Richard, could you maybe give us a little bit of background? Where did this concept of teacher-powered schools come from? It's been a century-long aspiration for elementary, secondary teachers to have greater input into decision-making in the schools in which they work. After all, voice and authority is one of the hallmarks of traditional professionals. The idea is professionals are the experts, and they have a lot of say in decisions in their organization and in their profession. And teachers have always aspired to this, but over the last century, it's largely been a, a frustrated aspiration that teachers, for the most part, have never had the kind of input into decision-making, the authority, the power, in a sense, that often traditional professionals have. And in some sense, we can view this new, well, I guess over the last couple decades, this, this growing movement of teacher-powered schools as, as some kind of fruition of that long aspiration. In some cases, it's quite explicit that teacher-powered schools model themselves after the partnerships that are common with law firms and accounting firms where the partners, they own the firm. It's theirs. They are the boss in a sense, and they make the decisions, and also they're accountable if the firm goes under. So the idea was, can we create a school where teachers have commensurate authority and power? It's theirs. They run it, and also they're responsible. They're accountable for how well it, it fares. I had always known that there was a small number of private schools scattered around the country, which in many ways were like the model we have in higher education, that the teachers had a lot of say into the decisions in the building and sometimes really run the schools. But I'd never heard of the teacher power movement until a decade and a half ago. They came to me and they came to me because I do research on this whole issue of how much say and voice do teachers have how much does it vary between schools and does it make any difference anyhow? And so they discovered me and that I did research in the very thing that they were developing. And so we came together as partners. And speaking of research, um, Sarah, what do we know about teacher-powered schools as they currently exist here in the United States? So I mentioned earlier some of the ways that teacher-powered schools differ from one another, but the emerging research, including my own work, does seem to suggest that there are some commonalities between them. So my research compared the schools in the teacher-powered schools inventory that's maintained by Ed Evolving and U.S. public schools overall, which uh, yielded some interesting findings. So for example, while a majority of teacher-powered schools, so about 60%, are district schools, they are more likely to be charter schools than the population of public schools overall. They're also somewhat more likely to be in urban areas, more likely to be small, 
with student populations under 300 students, slightly more likely to be designated high poverty, slightly less likely to have a majority white student population, and they have on average more special education students. The teachers working in teacher-powered schools are actually about twice as likely as the overall public school teacher population to be national board certified, and about two and a half times as likely to report that they loop with their students, which means that they actually stay with the same group of students year after year instead of getting a new cohort of students each year. And finally, um, teachers working in teacher-powered schools work on average 51 hours a week, which is about as much as the average teacher in the U.S. So some people might think, oh, they must work so much more. And while they do work incredibly hard, it isn't necessarily more than the typical teacher. And then what I'll say is beyond the numbers, my qualitative research identified a number of ways that teachers' professional experiences in teacher-powered schools diverged significantly from prevailing narratives of teacher work life. So, for example, we often hear and read about teachers being constrained in their teaching by top-down mandates that might interfere with teachers' ability to do what they feel like they need to do to teach their students, or teachers who are demoralized by what they see as disingenuous invitations to participate in leadership functions without actually having any real authority. And that can lead to a lot of teacher burnout and can cause some teachers to actually leave their schools or the teaching profession entirely. And that's something that's been very well documented, including in Dr. Ingersoll's work. The teachers I had a chance to interview felt very differently. So they were empowered to make changes that would allow them to better meet the needs of their students. That might be something like switching up the schedule when a class got too big, or adjusting the staffing model to support struggling readers, or prioritizing funding for mental health services when that became a need. In general, the teachers I talked to really felt that their participation in decision-making was meaningful and that most of the time it actually led to changes that they wanted to see. And I think that sense of accomplishment really fueled their future involvement in problem-solving and policy-making at the school level, which made them feel invested in and responsible for the success of their schools. Along with Sarah's research specifically looking at teacher-powered schools, I do research using large-scale national data looking at the amount of input into decision-making teachers have in schools across the country, both public and private, and whether it makes any difference. So this doesn't simply focus on teacher power schools. It focuses on all schools. And what we find is, is that schools vary dramatically in how either top-down or bottom-up they are. So on one extreme, you have a building where the teachers have little input into anything. It's a very top-down, highly controlled, sort of command and control model of organization. On the other extreme, you can have something that starts to look like a teacher-powered school where the faculty as a whole makes a lot of decision-making. Often this is through committees and shared governance structures. So in our research, we looked at, well, giving teachers say into decision-making may or may not be a nice thing to do, but does it make any difference? Does it link up with outcomes like, for instance, how the students score on the state tests, particularly in math and English language arts? And so we did these analyses, statistical analyses, and what we found was very interesting that after controlling for the poverty level of the school and whether it was urban, suburban, or rural and how large it was and how many beginning teachers, 
After controlling for a series of background characteristics, we found a very strong correlation. Schools in which teachers had more input in decision-making had significantly better student test scores on the state tests. And it was an interesting finding because it was very, what we call, robust. So it didn't prove that if you empower teachers, you're automatically your student scores are going to go up. What it shows is that where teachers have more say, those buildings, the, the students do score better on the state tests after controlling for various background characteristics of the students and the teachers in the schools. I'm curious what you both might think the implications of this movement might be, not just for teacher-powered schools themselves, but possibly for traditional schools as well. I think there's huge implications of this small but growing movement of schools run by teachers for all of schools in general. First of all, it's a new and different and alternative model of how to organize schooling. I mean, lots of times you'll talk to people they've never heard of such schools and and have a hard time imagining they exist. And so it, it suggests a whole different way of operating. And of course, as Sarah mentioned, there's lots of different variants here. I mean, in a sense, when teachers call the shots, things can go in different directions, maybe best suited to their situation. Which one of the lessons here might be that there's not just one way of doing it, that students and communities vary. And so how you set up the curriculum and run the school might well vary also. There's also implications for what we want out of schools. So these days, a lot of times people tend to come to the assumption that student test scores on these mass-produced state tests are the main outcome. And yes, they're very important. Of course, we want the students to do well on the math and the English language tests, and we want to see progress. However, there's all kinds of other outcomes that the public finds very, very important, if not more important than test scores. For instance, the public wants students to learn how to be well-behaved adults and good citizens. The public wants students to learn self-esteem, to be conscious and sensitive to people, students from other cultural and racial, ethnic, and geographic backgrounds, and the parents want students to learn how to critically think. So there's all kinds of other outcomes. And one of the questions here would be, when teachers call the shots, to what extent do these different outcomes get better or worse addressed? I mean, that's a question for future research. To add to that, I think what's really exciting about what we see emerging in teacher-powered schools are some real and viable possibilities for the complete redesign of school and the teacher's role. So schools have been plunged into this forced redesign over the last year because of COVID, but prior to that, there really hadn't been a shift away from what school has looked like for many decades. So before COVID, Kids mostly still attended classes and received instruction from teachers, moving from one discrete discipline to another every hour, and moving from one grade level to another each fall, in most cases, regardless of what they'd learned the previous year. Teacher-powered schools have been showing on a small scale that schools can look quite different. So whether that's reimagining the teacher's role as a guide or advisor of student-directed projects instead of a deliverer of lessons, or creating structures for students to learn together across grade levels, or de-emphasizing the learning of specific academic content in favor of developing the kinds of mindsets that Richard was referring to, 
that can help students thrive both in school and beyond school. Teachers' input was central to all of those shifts, and yet in so many U.S. schools, we keep seeing teachers' voices being silenced. And there's a survey that actually came out from Ed Week a little over a year ago that I found really interesting. They actually found that 69% of principals completely agree that teachers at their school feel empowered to bring problems to them, but that only 25% of teachers felt the same way. That discrepancy is a huge problem. So if as a school or district leader, you believe that your teachers are empowered, but your teachers don't feel empowered, then you haven't empowered your teachers. So we need to dig into why that discrepancy exists at the school or district level by asking teachers about their experiences. One of the implications of this movement is that it appears to provide a new answer to an old debate. The old debate concerning who really should be controlling things in schools. On one side, the argument is, these are our children. This is either our taxes or our tuition. And we don't really want to leave the decisions as to what goes on in schools solely to the educators. On the other hand, there's an opposite argument and viewpoint that's also longstanding, which is that these teachers are the closest to students and they should be treated as professionals and they are the experts. And we should be giving them a lot of autonomy in the classroom and input into school-wide decisions and taking advantage of their expertise to make decisions. And so there's a clash between these two sides. On the one hand, let's have more top-down control and accountability. On the other hand, let's decentralize and let teachers call the shots far more. And the teacher power schools sort of confronts this debate and says, well, why can't we combine both? Why can't we give teachers far more input in decision-making, but also hold them accountable to have both, have a balance here? And after all, this is the ideal of the traditional professions. The idea is professionals, we give them the training, the autonomy, the resources, and then we also hold them accountable, that you shouldn't do one without the other. And in a sense, this new model is an answer to this old debate of sort of one way or the other, well, why can't we balance both needs at the same time? So finally, I'm curious if you think there are opportunities here for future research, either for you both or others who are following the work of teacher-powered schools? Absolutely. There's lots of opportunity, and also there's a great need for further research. So there could be research to follow up on Sarah's focus on teacher-powered schools to also look at, well, how do they differ from other types of schools, and how do their outcomes differ, and not just student test scores, but all those other sorts of things, and developing good students, and developing critical thinking, and so there's there's a whole wonderful opportunity here and need for research of this new, dynamic, interesting model of school governance. I would add that I think it's essential that we better understand some of the equity implications of teacher collective decision-making authority. So our students who have historically been disadvantaged by the public school system, low-income students, Black and Indigenous students, students of color, special education students, are they faring better on these measures that Richard has talked about where their teachers have decision-making power? And then second, I think we need to know more about what it looks like to scale up a teacher-powered approach within the traditional school system. 
Many of the schools I investigated were founded on principles of democratic decision-making and teacher voice. The culture of teacher participation and decision-making in those schools had very, very deep roots. So how can a school that's been operating under more traditional or hierarchical norms become more teacher-powered and not revert back to a culture in which the principal or superintendent is expected to call the shots? Richard Ingersoll, once again, is Professor of Education and Sociology with the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education. And Sarah Kemper is a research associate with the Center for Applied Research and Educational Improvement, whose dissertation on teacher-powered schools is now publicly available through the University of Minnesota's Digital Conservancy. Richard and Sarah, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Keith. Thank you very much, Keith. Next up today, we're happy to welcome Jeff Austin, Principal of Social Justice Humanitas Academy, a pilot school serving students in grades 9 through 12 in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for joining us, Jeff. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. So to start, could you just tell us a little bit about your school and the students that you serve? Sure. Our school opened, we're, we're finishing year 10 here. We opened in 2011 and we are, like you said, a pilot school in Los Angeles Unified. So we're actually one of four schools on the Cesar E. Chavez Learning Academy's campus. We were designed primarily by teachers. So I was a social studies teacher at another local high school. And this campus was opened to relieve two other schools that were very crowded. And uh, they had a competition. It was literally a competition to see who would take control of the four small schools of this campus. And so a team of us from this other school worked together often late into the night to put together a plan and a proposal to have our own school. And that's kind of how we ended up here. So now we are, we have grades nine through 12. We have a social justice focus, but offer, of course, the full gamut of classes. We are a school very much powered by the thoughts, ideas, and innovation of our classroom teachers focused on supporting our students. And our community is generally considered low income. About 90% of our students would receive free or reduced lunch, except that because it's so high, all of our students get everything for free. And the community is mostly uh, Latino, Latinx, 96%. And a lot of, of native Spanish speakers, which finally justified all of the Spanish classes I took in high school and college. So uh, it's a really, it's a historic community with a ton of roots, a lot of history out on the very far outskirts of Los Angeles, the neighborhoods uh, Pacoima, Silmar, and the city of San Fernando. So yeah, we're, we're, uh, we feel young, but we also feel old. We've been talking today about teacher-powered schools and how they differ from other more traditional schools that we all may be familiar with. Could you explain a little bit what sets your school and its approach apart? I would say that you know, I, I don't want to give the impression that there are not other schools like ours in Los Angeles. There are definitely other pilot schools and others that, like ours, have, have been created by teachers. And so I think that's the first part that sets us, makes us different from the traditional Los Angeles high school is the level of influence that our teachers have. So here, even though the structure still puts me as principal as the primary decision maker, 
realistically, I, I do refer to my teachers. I do have committees that I meet with to get consensus from on a lot of major decisions. And I think that this is, gives us a place to be really innovative, both in our instruction and in our curriculum. But for us, I think the best, the most innovation we do is in the social emotional learning component and also just the ability to personalize our instruction to our students. We, we are smaller. We have you know, anywhere from 500 to 550 students at any one time. And so even as principal, I, I know most of the names of the students who come here and I can recognize them and have conversations. So I, I think that's a big part is our ability to innovate because of our smaller size. I think that we are adaptive. Part of having teachers be involved in the decision-making is we have the ability to change what we're doing sometimes from one day to the next, but to make sure that what we're doing meets the both immediate and long-term needs of our students and our community. And I think that's something that often gets pointed out to me by principals of other more traditional styled schools is like, you always change the way you're doing things. You always you don't follow the rules per se. You do something different. And I'm like, right, we do different when it's what we need to do for our community. And so I would say, I think a lot of it is just in our tradition of having teachers uh, having that really, really strong influence over a lot of our policy making, and that's what has always set us apart. In a blog post a few years ago that you wrote for Education Week, you acknowledged the fact that you had received a bit of criticism when the plan for the school was first proposed. Uh, in your experience, looking back now, do you feel that you've allayed those concerns, or maybe to put it another way, has this model achieved what you hoped it would? I always answer this with kind of like, I guess so, because I think a lot of that criticism wasn't very specific. And, and we were often told that we were too eccentric. Someone used the term huggy-touchy. You're too huggy-touchy. Uh, I would say the results have spoken for themselves. I mean, we have our graduation rate has been one of the highest in Los Angeles since we opened. You know, we're now hovering at the 94 to 99 percent graduation rate. Our students are getting into colleges. They're feeling safe at our school. And so in those senses, in those analytics, yeah, I think we're doing great. And I think that the things that we were originally accused of being eccentric about, especially the social emotional learning component, are now the standard. In that way, it has been very affirming and saying that, you know, we were those 10, 11 years ago when we wrote that plan and we talked about that component, I think we were right. I think that we were right in saying that having teachers be more influential in the design and running of the school would create greater innovation. And that's been true. The teacher leadership here is great. I have amazing teachers. They're incredible in the classroom, and they're also great leaders at our school. I mean, the, the stuff that there is also criticism that, you know, teachers would not be able to handle the operational side of a school. That's, that's definitely still a challenge because it's not part we get concerned about as much. And it can feel very overwhelming when you're trying to teach a class and learn about budgeting and learn about the, the different rules. And so and I think in that sense, that's what's changed is that our original goal of administrator was to focus on instruction. And I, and I do my best to do that. But I think a lot of what in adapting the role of administrator at our school is I'm like the first line of defense between bureaucracy and my teachers. And, and so in that sense, I think we're still working on it. 
So I really do think we've overcome a lot of those concerns. And some of the people who were our critics early on have become our allies. And I do think we have a pretty strong reputation right now in LAUSD. I think we've showed that both us and the other schools on our campus that are run primarily by teachers have showed the success that teachers can have when given a little more autonomy, more influence over what happens, and putting some value into the the voices that are generally most in front of students. Um, I think there's still some issues, bigger issues in the district. We noticed early on that we're working on, I think, that the district-wide conflict, administrators versus teachers, this kind of dynamic that is out there, it's still kind of hurting us. It's still something we're kind of battling. But um, for the most part, a lot of the criticism has gone gone away, and we have a lot more allies, but there's always still there's always a new roadblock right in front of us, so we're still working on it. Across the country, the teacher-powered school movement has certainly grown over the last, say, 20 years or so. Given your experience, would you have any advice or guidance or maybe even words of caution for policymakers, school leaders, and others who are trying to replicate this model in their own communities? Yeah, I would say the first piece of advice I would say about replicating is don't. Don't replicate. We all want to make sure we use this term. We can say things like bring to scale, spread this sort of model. Those are all fine. The thing I'm always very cautious about and what has happened with us is that uh, we've had dozens of leaders from other schools around the country visit us. And I always warn them not to make another Humanitas. Don't make another school like us. We were designed for a specific community, for a specific group of students. And so I want to kind of maybe emphasize that if you're looking to create a really good teacher-powered school, to really focus on not replicating someone else, but to really start with, like, look at who are you serving? Who are your students? What do they need? What does their community need? That has to be your foundation, is what are you going to provide to that community? I think that you want to look at who's on your team and really take a look at what are your values. In the community that we serve, there's definitely some economic issues. There's gangs and drugs. There's a disconnect for the opportunity of education. And those are things we looked at as a school on the outskirts of a very large city that has a tradition of being sort of semi-urban, semi-rural. And so we really built it around that. And then our staff said, you know, our values are let's promote equity. Let's promote the idea of establishing your learning as the goal and not a grade and not a test score. So we as a staff looked at that. We analyzed our values. We created a vision around our students and our staff reaching self-actualization, improving kind of who you are and, and looking at your core. And so I would say start there. Start with like who your students are, who your staff is, build a vision around those values and see who you're serving. And don't try to create a replica of another school that's doing a great job. I think maybe you can look at ideas and steal components from here and there, but just build the thing you need. And that's going to give you your, your foundation. And then from there, look at what are your musts? What are the things that are kind of like the, that you're not willing to give up? Right. Define the must versus the maybe. Do we really need this idea? The non-negotiables, right? So find out what your non-negotiables are around your values. And then remember that the old slogan, right? Rome was not built in a day. 
I always say go slow so you can go fast. Don't rush into anything. Don't make a decision out of a sense of urgency. Slow down, get consensus, look at the different sides of the story and the different ideas. Don't create the narrative before you know the details, right? Don't, don't build the story and try to build a school into the story. Let the school be the story. And never, ever forget to ask your students and your community what they think and what they need. Because in the end, every decision you make that goes against an existing policy or challenges a status quo, you will have so much more leverage if you have the backing of your students, if you have the backing of the families and the community around you. So I guess that's my long version. The long version? That might be the short version. But I just emphasize, don't go visit a school and make that school. Make your school and steal ideas and build it around vision, values, and the needs of your community. Jeff Austin, once again, is principal of Social Justice Humanitas Academy in Los Angeles. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Jeff. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And finally today, we're happy to welcome Charles Kite, former executive director of the Minnesota Association of School Administrators and a former school superintendent who now consults for school districts and businesses that work alongside them. Thanks so much for joining us, Charlie. I'm very happy to be here with you. So last year, through the Center for Policy Design, you published a comprehensive report on two Minnesota school districts which have adopted unique teacher-led, student-centered models of decision-making and school reform. To start, could you just set the stage for us a little bit? Why did those districts adopt these models and what were they hoping to achieve? Well, this all started about 10 years ago. Both districts had young progressive administrators or maybe middle career administrators, but they recognized that the present system of schooling really wasn't serving all of their students. And uh, they asked, why is this and what could we do to change it? And uh, they decided with a small discussion group here in Minnesota that they were going to try to give teachers in their districts more agency or more permission to run their own operations. Now, remember 10 years ago, we were pretty much in the throes of the federal government, especially saying you're going to do a testing system and you're going to be much more rigid. And they just decided to go a different direction. And they challenged their teachers to figure out how they were going to approach teaching and encourage them to innovate. And so began this experiment. It didn't happen overnight, took quite a bit of time. But now we're 10 years later and both districts have made substantial changes and their teachers are thriving and their students are thriving. And frankly, their administrators have better jobs because they don't have to control everything anymore. And they've given that control over to their uh, folks on the front lines. So could you just give us some examples of what this model looks like in action? What reforms or approaches did these districts adopt that set them apart from others in their region? Well, the story begins about 10 years ago when the superintendents approached their boards and asked them if they would be willing to set a strong strategic direction for their district and then let the teachers teach how they thought it would work the best in their classrooms without having uh, centralized control. And the boards agreed to do that. 
Now, over the years, the boards at time had to provide cover for the teachers and for the superintendents as uh, teachers were starting to adopt different ways of teaching and making their own decisions. And the boards not only had to provide cover, but it was also important that the superintendents said to their staffs, you don't have to do this. If you'd like to do it, you can, but you don't have to. And for the entire 10-year period, they let the teachers decide when they were ready to change their approach. Started with very few teachers in each district, but slowly grew and grew and grew as it became, um, frankly, more fun to teach. Another thing that happened is that in each district, they did have to make some changes of middle management because there were some, especially principals, that weren't really ready to give up some of their control and power. And both districts were growing, so they had the opportunity to hire new people, and they made sure they were bringing in people that were going to be somewhat in line with the direction they were going. And finally, it just happened in both districts that teacher leaders who happened to also be part of their unions got on board early and actually became very strong advocates for this. So instead of fighting an action with their unions, they actually had the unions saying to their teachers, this is okay if you do this. Go ahead and take the lead and figure out how you're going to have instruction be more uh, student-centered. Finally, I would say this. The districts then started to change the physical facilities of their schools, first at small amounts, but later actually one of the districts actually built a whole school that was much more conducive to allowing students to move around within the building, to find their own places to study, and to uh, proceed as they would like. Maybe one quick story. In one of the districts, the CFO was sitting at a school board meeting, and a group of students was going to present on what they were working on. And these students had set up kind of a garage band type of an approach and made this innovative presentation to the board of how they were learning about what that particular subject was. And the CFO kind of had an epiphany and said, this really is working. And these students are really taking control of their own learning and very quickly became an advocate rather than a blocking person. So that happened over and over again in these districts. You just touched a little bit on outcomes, and that was going to be my next question. Uh, what happened in these districts as a result of these changes? How did teachers, administrators, and other stakeholders respond to the model? Well, first of all, both districts found that they didn't need as large a district staff, uh, administrative staff, because more things were being done at the building and by the teachers themselves. They slowly moved their uh, resource allocation from district level to uh, having mentors for the teachers, having various teachers act as guides for others, and working at the building level or wherever they needed to be working. Secondly, the assistant principals, especially at the high school, the middle school, said they saw a significant drop in discipline problems in their schools because the teachers were letting the students kind of find their own way, and the students were staying pretty much on task. So it became easier to manage the building from that aspect. And finally, I had a hard time identifying if measurable learning was getting better or worse because both districts said, we're not going to emphasize so much all of this testing stuff. The kids still took the state tests and the federally mandated tests, but they weren't working to have the kids prepare for the tests. And their test scores stayed 
at least the same and actually over time increase somewhat. Not sure that I could make a direct link to that, but there certainly wasn't a fall off. Now, there were some teachers that didn't think this was a good idea and were hesitant to give the students uh, their own direction. And interestingly, the superintendent and the administration said, that's fine. If you want to approach it that way, that's okay. If other teachers want to have the students have more freedom to kind of pick their own direction and work, that's fine. But over time, more and more teachers slowly came on board. And there's a variety of how teachers approach this. There's not a one-size-fits-all program in any one of these schools. So following your work, uh, do you have any advice, guidance, or even words of caution for policymakers, school leaders, and others who are interested in pursuing teacher-led, student-centered models in their own communities? I do have some advice. You're asking an old school superintendent if he has advice. What a silly question. Um, First of all, it's important right up front to articulate the vision of what you want to do. And you have to engage the community. If you're not engaging the community to get them to understand what the strategic plan is and where you're trying to go, they're going to fight you because parents sometimes are going to hear their kids are wandering the halls or they're doing something that's not like how they went to school. The superintendents tell me that it was important to find a few early innovators and encourage them to try new approaches and then just let this grow somewhat by itself. Both districts invested heavily in professional development, both on the large scale to staff, but also personalized, self-directed professional development. In these schools now, the teachers who are really into this effort are teaching the other teachers, and the districts are actually paying them to do it. And they also sent their teachers out to visit other districts. And as time went on, other districts started sending teachers to them. One of these districts 10 years ago was a district of not high academic or, uh, I'll say, learning reputation. But as teachers from all over the state came to see how they were doing this, literally the teacher said, we realized that we're doing something pretty good. And they became more proud of what they were doing. And they, it actually encouraged the growth by having people look to them like they were some kind of experts. A couple other things. The districts invested short-term funds to help new ideas and programs start up. So they would give teachers some additional money, but then what they would do is they would shift it so that the programs were budgetarily neutral to anything else. And the reason for that is when the inevitable budget downturns come, you don't have to close a program down. They don't cost more. All you did was spend a little more money to get them going. And they both districts did a lot of redesign of their spaces and even their time allocations so that they could encourage more personalized learning opportunities. Each of these schools has their own teaching lab in it where teachers have released time to be in that lab, to work with other teachers and themselves to develop new approaches. And then finally, one of the superintendents said, you have to do whatever is legally possible to make changes and allow experiments to happen. He said, don't ask permission from higher levels, such as the State Department or others, because you'll most likely be told no, and you won't receive a very encouraging answer. So just go ahead and do it, you know, but make sure you're staying within the legal guidelines. And finally, you have to be patient. These kind of changes take time. They don't happen overnight. 
Charles Kite, once again, is a senior consultant and business development expert with Charles Kite Consulting. And you can find his report, which is titled Teacher-Centered, Student-Centered at centerforpolicy.org. Charles Kite, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. I enjoyed the time. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. For more episodes or to subscribe to the series, you can find us at researchminutes.org. To share thoughts on today's episode or to suggest a future topic, you can follow us on Twitter at CPRI Hub. That's C-P-R-E Hub.